I don't want to say, I don't want to say Neil deGrasse Tyson's phrase. What does he say? It's like, until then, keep looking up. <laughs> I love, there's a, there's a bumper sticker out there that says astronomy is always looking up. Producer, are you ready to peel back one of truth's protective layers? I guess so, because it's all it was all produced in a set somewhere in Hollywood. So that is one uh, of the many things that I would like to address. Although I don't want to spend the entire after talk discussing moon landing conspiracy theories, because as our listeners might have guessed, I do not believe in moon landing conspiracy theories. But uh, on the subject of conspiracy theories and sort of fringe subject matters, I wanted to say that I don't, I try not to ever embellish in these podcasts as I create them, but I do try to create the, or recreate rather, the experience that astronauts had when they were on the mission. So there were some mysteries and some peculiarities that astronauts encounter while on a mission that are later explained and they turn out to have perfectly logical explanations. One of these is the outer space type music that the astronauts reportedly heard on Apollo 10. And that turned out to be an audio feedback issue. They were not picking up alien signals from the surface of the moon. And we talk also about a UFO that Apollo 11 saw, which was most likely a panel that came off of the S-4B stage, the last stage of the Saturn V rocket, that was most likely the explanation for the UFO sighted by Apollo 11. So, so it was an identified flying object. Well, it's been identified now. Yeah. So we don't really mention those logical explanations in the podcast, and I think it's, it's to me, just an effort to show that space is very strange, and astronauts do encounter things that they were not expecting and that sometimes they cannot explain, or that are not explained until later on in debriefing. Well, there were believed to be sea monsters in the waters when people were exploring. Absolutely. Back in the day. Yeah, and that was a point that I tried to make at the end of the podcast, was that only 12 people have set foot on the surface of the moon. And even in North America when hundreds if not thousands of people had been exploring the continent, there were still a lot of myths and there were still a lot of uncertainties about what existed in North America. El Dorado, the legendary lost city of gold, was one of those things that I mentioned in the episode. So it it goes with uncharted territory that you're inevitably going to end up with some myths that arise around it. To stick with format, do you want to identify the beer of the episode? Yes, I got so excited to talk about lunar landings that I didn't even mention the beer that we're consuming for this episode is a Scottish ale called Old Chubb. And on the can, it says, it's like Sputnik. Now, I believe, I learned later that this is actually 
a reference to a film with Mike Myers. I think it's uh, So I Married an Axe Murder, and it had the film has nothing to do with outer space. I think uh, Mike Myers has a, a younger cousin in the film with a very large head. <laughs> and someone says it's it's like Sputnik, a virtual planetoid. So but, it's got a lot of head. <laughs> I think that that's worth it. Is that where where you're getting is what they're getting at? Is that it I has don't, a, a big head on on the beer? I suppose I suppose that's what it's a reference to. But I thought it was it was appropriately outer spacey in that regard. And I <coughs> also wanted to point out for our listeners in Colorado that not too far from the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, where I used to do presentations, is the Oscar Blues Brewing Company that makes Old Chubb and Mama's Yellow Pills and a couple of other different beers with quirky names. Delightful beers. So a nice afternoon in Colorado could be spent at seeing a show at the Fisk Planetarium and then heading over to the Oscar Blues Brewery. Mm, yes. We're in the midst of First Man having just recently come out. Yes. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm I'm reluctant to spoil it for any of our listeners, though when this airs, or when this is released, the movie will have been out for a few weeks. But if I could describe it in one word, I would say immersive. You get a real sense in the movie First Man of what it would have been like to sit in these claustrophobic spacecraft and flying machines and go on the journey. And I, I think in terms of its technical accuracy and in terms of its immersive cinematography, I would say that I give the film an A+, plus, four stars. There have been some criticisms that I think one one reviewer put it very amusingly and said, that it's about the greatest accomplishment in all of humanity, but the movie lacks humanity. That is to say, the emotional development of the character of Neil Armstrong and the other characters in the movie is a little bit lacking. And that, to some degree, is valid, but I would also say that there are a lot of people who said that Neil Armstrong was very distant, that he was a difficult guy to get to know, and that that was very much his personality. Mm -hmm. So, for a biopic on Neil Armstrong there's an argument to be made that that could be forgiven even though there are people who said that Neil Armstrong did indeed have a sense of humor so he wasn't serious all the time but he was by many accounts a a sort of peculiar guy and at the very least he might have just been reluctant to accept all the fame and the publicity and the celebrity that go along with being the first man to walk on the moon. And I think it should be said that both of his sons were a part of the production of the movie, and actually one of his sons is in the movie. So they tried to uh, put their finger on the on the scale when they needed to to try to make it more realistic to how their father was. I think there was even a moment when one of a politician said that they were making it to Hollywood. And he actually called out, uh, one of the sons called out the politician saying that he didn't know what he was talking about when he was talking about his father. So That's very interesting. So, yeah, my overall review for First Man is, I think it's pretty good overall. The technical accuracy is very high. You get some immersive cinematography. It's very intense. I think, in some respects, it's not... 
I wouldn't refer to it as an educational movie necessarily. I would say that it's a it's a thriller. It's very intense and it shows the reality that Neil Armstrong, both as a test pilot and as an astronaut, faced death many, many times mm-hmm. in his life. So there's an argument to be made when he finally landed on the moon, even though he had there was very little fuel remaining, even though they were way past the launch site, or not the launch site, excuse me, the landing site that they were trying to land at, even though it was very chaotic, I think there's an argument to be made that Neil Armstrong knew that he could do it. He knew that he could pull it off, and he did. Yeah. The, re- the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. So lo- looking at my notes here, I had a couple of thoughts. It's sort of funny that after three episodes in a series devoted to the space race, I can't keep my mouth shut. I have a lot to say. <laughs> But we said this before, and I'll say it again, because it bears repeating. There are so many stories that we were not able to tell in this podcast. It was sort of a big picture podcast about all these events and the people who were probably the some of the most important players. But there are astronauts who were great men who accomplished amazing things in the early space program who we we don't even mention. And there are plenty of people, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people with NASA who helped to make it all possible. One of these people is Margaret Hamilton, who was a woman who actually coined the term software engineer and designed a lot of the software that came to be used on the uh, Apollo, I believe the command module and lunar module, uh, guidance computers and things like that which were are primitive by today's standards, but were absolutely state-of-the-art at the time. And we, her, we didn't mention her, along with a lot of other people, but she definitely, definitely bears uh, a lot of worthy recognition for the work that she did on the Apollo program. And I would say, furthermore, that some people say that the guidance computers that America was able to design with the advent of microprocessors were the reason that America landed on the moon first and not the Soviet Union. And that the Soviet Union could have probably orbited a man around the moon first, but actually landing on the moon is difficult if you don't have a guidance computer. It's difficult if you don't have that added uh, advantage. You'd have to have a full-time mathematician constantly doing all of the calculus to be able to figure out where, where you're going to like constantly be putting your vectors to figure out how you're going to get to the moon. Right. So that's one of the reasons, one of several reasons, I think, that the United States was the first and to this day only nation to land a human being and hu- indeed human beings, plural, on the moon. Well, it's interesting that they chose that tactic too because the Russians, if they were going to do it their way, it would have all been ground controlled. So the, the American or the, the human beings would have just been along for the ride for the most part. Yeah, that's very true. So it's interesting that America took the hybrid po- approach of having and mostly it, human piloted. It turned out to be a very good thing that there was a pilot and an exceptionally skilled pilot at that Yeah. in the driver's seat. The other piece that I wanted to talk about is there's this term that I've been fascinated by in recent weeks and months. It's called gaslighting. And as most people know, gaslighting is getting people to question their own memory, 
their own perception and their own reality itself through psychological manipulation. And there's an argument to be made that people like von Braun and Korolyov were sort of gaslighting superpowers. The leaders of the most powerful nations on earth were sort of being gaslighted because these men were essentially just science nerds who fantasized about traveling in space and how amazing that was going to be. And they realized that it was within our grasp technologically, but it would be incredibly expensive and it would take a lot of time and money and resources to make that dream a reality. So they kind of spoke to military and political leaders at the highest levels and said, oh, you know, this this space thing, it's something that will be a worthy investment. And a lot of leaders at the time said, who cares whether we go into space or don't go into space? What we're really interested in are the weapons of war, like intercontinental ballistic missiles and whose army would beat the other army in combat, who can exert more power around the world. And these science nerds, essentially, these glorified science nerds kind of said, well, you know, you could put a camera on board, a little artificial satellite, and you could find out a lot about the other nation's capabilities, the other nation's armaments, the other nation's armies, troop movements, etc. So, you know, if you, if you guys don't want to do that, if you don't want to send an artificial satellite into orbit, that's fine. America will probably do it first, and the Soviet Union will lag behind, and then a lot of political and military leaders started to say, well, wait, 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 maybe maybe we've dismissed this a little too quickly. Maybe there is some purpose to be served by uh, sending things into outer space. And there's an argument to be made that it was not known prior to the launch of Sputnik. No one really knew just how influential it would be politically. Mm. I think that, you know, I should probably stop this but i always bring everything that we, we talk about back to artificial intelligence and how we believe that we're going to have a certain amount of restriction on what we do with artificial intelligence but if we understand the capabilities that the worst case scenario it's kind of doing the same thing where it's driving people to want to understand the greater limits of it so then we can defend against it Absolutely. And at a certain point, with artificial intelligence, the cat's kind of out of the bag. Absolutely. I would imagine that 100 years from now, the dawn of the space age will be looked at in much the same way as the singularity. For those who don't know, the singularity is sort of described, at least by author and futurist Ray Kurzweil, as this sort of paradigm-shifting moment when artificial intelligence becomes... I guess, uh, a fundamental part of human evolution and changing human evolution and when artificial intelligence is equal to or greater than human intelligence. So I would, I would imagine that the only thing that would compare to that paradigm shift in human history would be the space age. Yeah. Or the age of microprocessors, which very much goes hand in hand with the space age. Mm-hmm final item that I have is I wanted to address there's a controversy or sort of a faux controversy about the lack of an American flag appearing in First Man. Have you heard about this, Mr. Producer? No. I think I I recall there being an American flag, but... So Neil Armstrong planted an American flag 
on the moon when Apollo 11 did their moonwalk. So that moment is not shown in the film. First okay, man. I, I see what you're saying. I, didn't, I don't recall them planting the flag, but I remember seeing it in First Man. Well, so that's, that's sort of the response that the filmmakers gave is that the American flag is very prominent throughout the movie, whether it's the American flag on the side of the lunar lander or at press conferences or what have you, that the American flag is very prominent in the film and that this was not necessarily liberal Hollywood going out of their way to snub American patriotism mm-hmm. in in favor of doing something else. So, so I, are I think you it's... saying that the controversy is they didn't show the flag planted in the moon? Right. I well, thought... They... Am I like am I um, reimagining things? But I thought I saw it there. I didn't see them actually like digging out the the. Well, they don't show them planting the flag, right? So it's it but seems they like they show a them like digging the hole at the very beginning, right? Well, like. Um, well, you haven't seen the movie, have you? I did. I saw it last night. Oh, you did. Yes. Oh wow. I had to do my research. Well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just telling you that's that's the controversy. And you don't actually see them planting the flag. Okay, I think that we may be having uh, intermingling stories because I think it was Rubio that was the one that was calling him out for it. Yeah, Marco Rubio. Marco, Marco, Marco Rubio. Rubio. Absolutely, yeah. Marco Rubio, and among many others, have criticized that. And I think it's I think it's sort of a silly criticism. And I think that that goes back to my previous statement saying when I said that uh, one of Armstrong's sons called him out and said you're being crazy because right, right. They were there to be able to portray their father and the events that occurred then in the best way possible, even if they made themselves look like jerks as little children. That's funny. <laughs> that is funny. I, I think about how strange it would be. Uh, Neil Armstrong's children uh, make... Uh, one of his sons makes a, a cameo in the film, but of course there are these very young child actors portraying Neil Armstrong's children in the film. So sometimes I think about how peculiar it would be to see your five-year-old self being portrayed by an actor uh, on screen. That'd be a little a little strange. So my final thought on the, the flag being planted is the thing that I find most ironic about this controversy, about the American flag not being shown planted in the in the lunar soil or not not showing the astronauts planting the lunar flag in the lunar soil is when Apollo 11 took off from the moon's surface and ignited their ascent engine and flew back into lunar orbit to rendezvous with astronaut Michael Collins. The flag was blown over because of the the power of that ascent engine. So In the real world, you're saying? In real life. Yeah. That is what happened. So if we were to travel right now back to the moon and walk on that hallowed ground and see Tranquility Base, the site of the first manned exploration of the moon's surface, the flag would be in the dust. Mm-hmm. It, would, it would be laying in the dust. And it's a, a question of if this does become someday a, a protected site. And it's already, to some extent, considered a protected site where... Mm-hmm. Based on what I've read, no nation or private corporation on Earth is supposed to land anywhere near the mm-hmm. Apollo 11 landing site or around the other landing sites because the, they're trying to protect them for future generations if we ever do colonize the moon one day. Mm-hmm. So 
it would it would indeed be strange to visit a place that is very famous in terms of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, accomplishment in America's history, and to see the flag just laying on the laying on the ground, laying in the lunar regolith, kind of covered in dust. Well, you wouldn't be able to see it. I mean, it's been almost fifty years, and it's probably well well covered in in dust. Well, the site might be better preserved than you think because there is no air on the moon. There mm. is no weather on the moon there is no erosion on the moon there's no rain there's no wind on the moon that most likely so tiny micrometeorites do hit the moon right. periodically but most likely the footprints are still there and the footprints will remain there for quite some time so it's it is truly a a strange magical place that seems to defy a lot of the rules that we apply to the real world now so this is one of the questions i was going to ask you then uh you said in previous episode that we placed reflective mirrors so we, we could know the exact distance from earth to the moon right laser reflectors yeah and this is one of the proofs i think that could be used when confronting people who do not believe that the united states ever landed men on the moon well they planted these laser reflectors there so there are lasers on earth powerful enough to bounce signals back if they know exactly where to aim it, exactly how to set up this experiment. They bounce those signals back. I suppose a conspiracy theorist could say, well, that doesn't mean human beings planted those laser reflectors right. there. That's fair. But that's, uh, that's one of many pieces of evidence that we could use to support the idea that human beings have indeed landed and walked on the moon. So then my question was, why can we not get with the sophisticated telescopes that we have now, why can we not get a shot of the landing site? Well, there have actually been several shots, uh, photographs of the landing site from uh, from up in space, from lunar orbit. Basically, it's, it's we're very, very tiny. Mm. So the, the hardware that we took up there, all that's really left is the descent stage of the lunar module. So mm -hmm. the entire lunar module is not there because they right. had to... They had to use it to get get home, essentially. So that that's basically my my response to your question is that it's for quite some time was was too difficult to be seen from the Earth. I don't know if our telescopes have advanced to to the point where we can see those sites from Earth right now, uh, but there have been several photographs taken over the years, and you can see they had a lunar rover, which we didn't talk much about in the episode, but this little tiny little car that they used to drive around on the moon and visit different sites. And you can kind of see that the, these tracks that look like car tracks in the lunar soil from, from up in orbit mm -hmm. and some of the areas where astronauts were digging around and things like that. So there, there are those traces that are still there. But one of the things we didn't address in a lot of depth in the episode is the fact that there are indeed people who do not believe that we landed on the moon. And I... I believe that we did land on the moon. I can understand the conspiracy theorist mindset, particularly in the late 1960s. This is when the Vietnam War was going on. This is under the Nixon administration. There are a lot of things that the United States government has done throughout our history, obviously, that have been dishonest and deceptive. And, of course, plenty of things, that, plenty more things, I would argue, that the Soviet Union has done in their history that were right. dishonest and deceptive. 
But I, I don't think the moon landing is a hoax. And the number one piece of evidence for my belief in the moon landing is, it's kind of unfortunate that I have to say my belief in the moon landing, but my <laughs> belief in the moon landing is about 800 pounds of moon rocks that were brought back, not just by Apollo 11, but by a, a series of missions, by the 12 men who walked on the moon and gathered these rocks. Now, again, conspiracy theorists would argue, well, perhaps they were faked. Well, we're talking about rocks that are about 3 billion years old. We do have rocks on Earth that are about 3 billion years old, but they're not particularly common. Hmm. It would be quite a feat to gather 800 pounds of 3 billion-year-old rocks here on Earth. There are other things like the fact that these rocks haven't been subject to the same forces that we see on Earth, like wind and water hmm. erosion. These rocks are very unique, and geologists from all around the world have looked at them. Of course, in the interest of presenting both sides, there have been one or two hoaxes that have come out over the years where some of these moon rocks were given as gifts to foreign dignitaries. In one case, there was a rock that turned out to be a piece of petrified, petrified wood. So, And I, th I think what happened there is someone probably stole the rock, replaced it with mm -hmm. some other some other item and passed it off as a moon rock. It's the next national treasure movie that's about to come out. <laughs> the moon that, rock swap. That would be a that would be a really interesting national treasure sequel. What do you think um, Buzz Aldrin thinks of his portrayal in the movie? Well, now you're you're making me wish I had uh, done my homework a little bit better because I, I haven't read a lot about Buzz Aldrin's reaction to the movie and I would, would certainly be curious. Do you think that he would say that that was a fair portrayal of him? Because in my opinion it kind of seemed like they were portraying him as kind of a, an abrasive yeah. speaking without thinking kind of a person. Yeah. I, I think the description that you just gave is actually fitting for Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. I, th I think Buzz Aldrin is at the, at the very top of the list of astronauts whom I would love to meet someday. Mm -hmm. He is a personal hero of mine. I think Buzz Aldrin is an amazing astronaut with an yeah. amazing story. And I could do an entire podcast episode about just Buzz Aldrin. So I mean no disrespect to right. Buzz Aldrin in saying that. But you say abrasive. There's actually a moon landing conspiracy theorist who confronted Buzz Aldrin on camera. Maybe you've seen the video. It's mm -hmm. on YouTube. And the guy says, are you going to admit that we never we never landed on the moon? You know we never landed on the moon. We never landed on the moon. And finally, Buzz Aldrin snaps and punches this man in the face on, on camera. And so that is, that is Buzz Aldrin right. in, in a nutshell. There's another thing, you know, you say sort of tone deaf, sort of speaking without thinking. Right. Buzz Aldrin was a guy who was very much wrapped up in his work to the point where, and he was also a brilliant, brilliant engineer. I believe he went to MIT. So one astronaut described meeting Buzz Aldrin and having Buzz Aldrin as a, as a close friend. And he said that they were at a party one night and he was sitting next to Buzz Aldrin on a couch. And the astronaut says, all I was thinking about was that pretty looking girl at the uh, other end of the room. And I wanted to go over and 
uh, maybe talk to her, maybe introduce myself. And Buzz Aldrin's sitting next to me with a glass of whiskey in his hand talking about lunar orbit rendezvous and the orbital mechanics of lunar orbit rendezvous and going on and on and on. And all I want to do is break away from this conversation with Buzz Aldrin and go talk to the attractive blonde in the the corner of the uh, the house party. Mm -hmm. That was Buzz Aldrin, that he was very, very skilled technically, but very much sort of the stereotypical personality of an engineer. And maybe part of the problem may have been the the actor who was playing him was the uh, the guy from House of Cards, who's the Pennsylvania senator that's just a complete mess. I didn't realize that. And uh, he's just kind of a character that you can not like, and so it's been burnt into my my. Yeah, that that <laughs> that's <laughs> possible. Know. No, that's possible. I thought it was kind of peculiar that Buzz Aldrin has hair. And the actor portraying Buzz Aldrin is bald. It's, it doesn't yeah. really... It's a nitpick. Yeah. But still, it was, it was a little strange. Yeah, I, I thought just generally the characters in First Man, apart from Neil Armstrong, weren't particularly well developed. And that mm-hmm. that is true of Buzz Aldrin uh, as well. Which brings me to... I thought it was strange that they, they never addressed Von Braun at all in the movie. Right. You would have thought he would have been kind of an important character to bring into the, the film, but they didn't. I would have thought Buzz Aldrin would be a more important character in the film, but he is not. Well, and they also... the the Okay, so the irony about them not making it America enough, they hardly address, other than like film, TV, things that occurred, anything that was going on in Russia. And how right. much of a like an actual race this space race was? Yeah, I think that's so. There, there, there's a point where they show Alexei Leonov and his famous EVA on television, and that's talked about. But for the most part, I would agree with you that the broader context of the space race is not really discussed a lot in the movie. And, you know, I, th- I think that's unfortunate. So th- there's a lot of little nitpicks that I could make yeah. about the movie. Absolutely. And I would say, for anyone who wants to know my opinion on space movies, if you want to see what I believe to be the best movie about the Apollo project, watch Apollo 13. Apollo 13 is still the best, in my opinion. And Apollo 13 is a movie that I think does a better job of showing you what, what was going on and what takes place in a mission like that because there are a lot of scenes at mission control in the film Apollo 13. So you get to see those, all those people working behind the scenes Mm -hmm. with the astronauts. Whereas first man, as I said, being a very immersive film experience, you can hear garbling on the radio of, of people at mission control talking to Neil Armstrong, but no one in mission control has, has any kind of, you know, you would, you would almost think that, Neil Armstrong was flying there with his crew pretty much alone, pretty much yeah. doing it all on his own without a whole lot of help from Mission Control. Well, and they, they were trying to... They, I think Apollo 13... Was Apollo 13 is the name of the movie, right? Yeah, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. That was a movie about that mission. Right. First Man is partially about... The first man on the moon. It's also about the sacrifice his family and his wife gave for him, and how much of a, you know, a stalwart, stalwart she was, and being able to 
deal with all the the problems and yeah and it's a biopic so it should be about neil armstrong rather than about the broader right. space program but i think to your point to your point they they could have done a better job in my opinion of conveying the fact that it was a race and i think there's a time magazine cover that shows two astronauts in outer space both of them sprinting and the Russian astronaut is just slightly ahead of the American. You can see the moon in the upper portion of the magazine cover. And it's just this this painting of two astronauts literally sprinting and the Russian astronauts just a little bit ahead of the American astronaut. So it was very much in the public consciousness at, at this time that Russia was on the heels of the United States of America and for quite some time beating the United States of America decisively, which hopefully is a, is a point that we convey time and time again in the episode because it's a reality of history that there are a few times in the last hundred years of American history where America was bested by a foreign power. Mm. So I, I wanted to say with all of the context that we have now of our three part series and first man, I think you did it better. Thank you. I think, uh, you did a very good job of telling both nations toil sure. and everything that they went through to make this happen. And um, seeing First Man was, it was good for the eyes. It was pleasant to be able to see the, like, what it would have sure. been like to be sitting on top of essentially the space needle getting ready to get blown into outer space and to know that you're basically on this, like, tall tower. Um, but I think just the, the actual human story was told better in our series not to pat ourselves on the back but i think there's more information you get a better sense of all the little knickknacks and things that came up throughout the mission even though as you said we didn't talk about every single mission that occurred in the build-up to a man walking on the moon yeah absolutely so yeah and and i tried to make this podcast informative and as well as entertaining, whereas First Man is a movie that I think is first and foremost entertaining rather than informative. Yeah. What are you thinking? Do you want me to start pounding through my questions that I have for you? Yes, please. Okay. Um, so just getting to the Russian space mission, um, we begin... Which mission are you referring to? Uh, just... The beginning of the episode referring to all the, 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 the Russian space missions that they did post, um, I think it was, we ended on Apollo 8, right? Yes. And so, so that, that would be the first flight of the Soyuz of with the Soyuz, uh, right. Vladimir Komarov. Right. So we basically have back-to-back Russia trying to send man in space to do the mission that Apollo 10 did where they were trying to link up with another craft to be able to uh, facilitate for them to be able to go to the moon with a, with a second stage. Right. I would actually liken it more to, I mean, you're correct, but I would liken it more to the mission of Apollo 9, which we talked very little about. And Apollo, what Apollo 9 did is in Earth orbit, joined together the lunar module and the command, command service module docked while in orbit around the Earth. That was Apollo 9's mission. 
Apollo 10, sort of a dress rehearsal for the moon landing where they actually went to the moon mm -hmm. and docked and undocked in lunar orbit to sort of practice. Um, so unfortunately, he gets into space. There's a little bit of a... Uh, what would you call it? Tremendous technical difficulties with yeah. the spacecraft, which they were anticipating and, and they were predict. I say they, the cosmonauts, the engineers... Just about everybody involved knew that there were going to be a lot of problems with this mission. And essentially, shockingly enough, that it was a suicide mission. Mm -hmm. But there were political pressures that they were forced to succumb to. So they get him through the first craziness of this mission. Yeah. And then he's on his way re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and basically burns up upon re-entry. No, that, that's not quite okay, accurate. No. So re-entry is this very dicey time where if you, you come in too steep, you burn up, you come in too shallow, you bounce off the Earth's atmosphere, sort of a ricochet effect. Miraculously, Vladimir Komarov was able to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, which there, there are a lot of people who didn't believe that could even be achieved because this was such an ill-fated mission. And the, the heartbreaking part about it is... To my, to my understanding of the Soyuz 1 mission, his parachutes didn't deploy. So he's, he was going, I think, about 300 miles per hour when he hit the Earth's surface. And not just that, but he hit, uh, he hit land because the Russians had these hard landings, while, whereas Americans landed uh, you know, in a splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean. I think if you're going that fast, it really doesn't matter where you land. Yeah, you know what? You're right. I mean... <laughs> you're right. No. But so that was that was like the Apollo 1 equivalent. That that was, at the time, the it was the first death of an astronaut, or excuse me, the first death of a cosmonaut. Mm -hmm. And it was this incredibly tragic moment and the most disastrous point in the Russian space program at that time, or the Soviet space program at that time. So then that leads us to Gregarin, who was their next all-star that was going to be going on the next um, mission. Right. And he passes away in a military flight training exercise. Yes. And so it's interesting how slowly things are starting to creep away from the Russian Empire in, in space right now. And how they they appeared to be the tip of the spear for so long. And then, as you brought us in with this last episode, we're starting to see them slowly fall away and that the Americans are slowly rising. Absolutely. Uh, just an interesting time to be around, I'm sure. A very interesting time to be around. And I would say, just a final thought on that, is that Yuri Gagarin's story is truly very tragic in that he was an international celebrity for this brief period of time and went on the, the mission of a lifetime. And the last years of his life, he was an alcoholic. He was, by all accounts, very depressed. And as we say in the episode, there, there are certainly some theories that the Soviet government did away with him mm -hmm. because he was the symbol of uh, Nikita Khrushchev and who was no longer in power, who had been deposed in a sort of bloodless coup. 
and he, he just became more of a he had become more of a liability than an asset so they got rid of him i don't know that that is true or not we we have no proof that that's the case but it could very well be the case well the only proof nowadays chris is if that you hang yourself on your doorknob right um so i wanted to talk about apollo 8 because they're it's kind of one of the the preliminary missions that you really feature before we start getting to the to apollo 11 it's an incredible turning point in the space race yeah so one of the first interesting things was that and it's one of the things that's most well known about Apollo 8 is that one of the astronauts gets really sick. And this is not necessarily traditionally something that you would worry about with a lot of these these pilots because they've kind of been through the ringer. They've got their sea legs underneath them, and it would not be expected that someone would be getting sick. So the expectation that it's not a motion sickness, that it's an actual illness, gets very scary and then it becomes, oh, crap, we're going to have basically a capsule full of vomit where they're just basically swimming in it trying to not drown. Right. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And I, I think it was just miraculous that the other, whatever it was that he had, the other astronauts didn't contract it. There are, I'm not a doctor, and I don't know exactly what Frank Borman what exactly how to diagnose what Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, was experiencing on that mission. But what I would say is that for some people and for some professional astronauts, space sickness is a very real phenomenon where you have guys who, I don't know if we've discussed this in previous After Talk, but space sickness is this, these physical symptoms that come... We for, did. We did. We talked about it with um, the female... Oh, yeah, Russian uh, uh, Valentina Tereshkova, yeah. Yeah, who yeah, experienced yeah. space sickness. Yeah. But apparently you, you have people who are exceptional fighter pilots who have flown in every experimental military aircraft imaginable who still experience the symptoms of space sickness, which is the result of the human body trying to adjust to zero gravity. And you can imagine you know, the contents of your stomach are floating around in zero gravity, just like everything else or the fluid in your inner ear is sort of floating around you know the human body has evolved to live in an environment with gravity obviously and when when you take that away there are uh, a lot of issues and so that might have been the case with frank borman but i i I would have to read more about that to really diagnose what his problem was um so i think apollo 8 could be looked at as one of the most seminal moments in american history and that it really it cemented a lot of things in americans eyes a it cemented the importance of space i think that that led to a lot of people not being as questioning as they were prior as to where all that money was going and why they were doing it but i also think that it it brought a lot of people to their television sets because of it was like everyone had a family that was out in outer space and i say that because the mission occurred during the 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 christmas season and or the thanksgiving and christmas season Uh, it was christmas just okay it only it's only a a round trip to the moon is only about a week okay it's only about a week out, out of your life and and going to the moon is only about three or four days and so they scheduled it around that time just due to 
how the orbits worked out. Yeah, so when you talk about scheduling, a lot of this was due to the fear that the Russians were going to try to send mm-hmm. an astronaut to either orbit the moon or just, you know, you can do a sort of figure-eight maneuver where you sort of just slingshot around the moon and come right back to Earth, which is actually a lot easier than going into orbit, going out of orbit, right. coming back to Earth. And the Russians had the technology... Well, there's an argument to be made. I use that phrase a lot. But there's an argument to be made that the Russians might have had the technology to do that at the time, perhaps. And so that was the reason that Apollo 8 was so eager to do this kind of a mission because they didn't want Russia to boast that they got to the moon first, even if they didn't land on the moon. And yeah, I I think your, your analogy about a space family, I think is very poetic. And because it was televised, I think the American people felt like they were getting a chance to share in this incredible adventure in a way that they certainly would not have if it was if they could not watch it on television. And one of the reasons why that was so unique to me is they said that the engineers that were putting together all, all the, the contents of their food had slipped in little shooters of bourbon in for Christmas. Yeah. I believe that was uh, Deke Slayton who was the head of the astronaut office. Deke Slayton has a really wonderful uh, career that we could, we could do an entire episode on that. But Deke Slayton was one of the original Mercury seven astronauts and at the very last minute, at the very last minute, they told him that he w- wouldn't be able to fly in space with the other Mercury astronauts, and he ended up having a sort of administrative career at NASA. But he really, he sort of understood what it was like to go through the, those extensive medical tests and astronaut yeah. training and things like that. So he was kind of a unique figure at NASA in the sense that he wasn't just another bureaucrat; that he was an astronaut himself, although he hadn't flown in space at the time. I think that was a, going back to First Man, that was an interesting way that, uh, that, or an interesting aspect that they portrayed in the movie is that you don't really understand how much the astronauts themselves, the engineers themselves, are actually doing in the process of this. Yeah. Uh, As in loading in the other astronauts, wishing them well, working down in the, the, in the command uh, control center, talking to the astronauts. Like one of the cool things, and maybe if you're a listener, you know this, or if you don't know it, then you're gonna learn. Um, they would have the astronauts were the ones that talked directly to the astronauts in space, so that you didn't just have some math whiz or somebody who was a specialist in something trying to communicate something to the person up in space, because there's just a certain uh, parlance that pilot engineers have uh, uh, in comparison to, say, someone who's a straight mathematician or straight logistician or something like that. And every mission had a backup in uh, among cosmonauts and among American astronauts as well. So the backup is ready to go at a moment's notice. In the case of Apollo 13, you have this guy, uh, Jack Swigert, portrayed by Kevin Bacon in the movie Apollo 13, who's actually elected to Congress for the state of Colorado. Fun fun fact for <laughs> you, there's a statue of him at Den- Denver International Airport. That's right, yeah. So Jack Swigert was actually called two days before the launch of Apollo 13, two days 
before a, a, an attempted mission to the moon, they called him up and they said, you're going to have to fill in for this other guy. So if you imagine being well-trained enough to step in at the last moment and do someone else's job, that's the person you want talking to you on the phone while you're up in outer space. Yeah. So then we get to Russia's last dick move, which is where they've decided... Because the okay, so this is post Apollo ten. We're getting ready to go on our mission, and Russia's decided that they're gonna create Luna fifteen to try to beat us to the moon to get samples and then return them back to kind of just be like, oh, well, your mission you didn't need, you don't need to go anymore. We already got everything you were gonna go there for. Yeah, it was it was kind of a, a move of desperation, certainly. <laughs> I don't know if you want to expound on that. It, it just seemed v- kind of funny to me. It was like like the, the Hail Mary move of... No, it, it is a little bit funny. Absolutely. And there's some really interesting audio you can find online from the... I believe it's the Jordell Bank Observatory, which is an observatory in the UK where they were listening to the signals that the Luna 15 probe was sending back to Earth. And keep in mind, we knew that this probe existed, but I don't know if I addressed this in detail in the episode, but they didn't know that it was going to land. They didn't know it was a lander. Mm-hmm. So they thought it was it was just going to be orbiting the moon. And you can hear in the audio recordings from the Jordale Bank Observatory where people in the background say, it's landing, it's landing. And then they, they lose contact with the probe. And what ended up happening is it, it crashed into the lunar mountains. It, it was not successful in bringing that sample return back to earth but there's some british person in the audio recording who says this really has been an affair of the highest order (laughs) but sort of sort of in so many words conveying wow this was a pretty suspenseful day yeah um and then i guess we'll just roll into the mission at hand um what mission would that be? Apollo 11. Apollo 11. Um, very interesting. I And it's fun putting side-by-side side the movie and your portrayal of it. Um, I, I don't remember. You didn't mention this in the, episode, the last episode, but I, the one hiccup that I had is I thought there was a, a technical malfunction that happened upon return that was a big deal. I could be wrong. Yeah, so... And it wasn't mentioned in yours or in the movie. Yes, yeah, so funny enough, I think this would have been good in the, in the movie to, to have included this in the movie. So yes, the, interestingly enough, I, I'm sure long before we started this podcast, I'm sure that we've had many conversations about yeah. outer space. Just about anybody who knows me can't really maintain a personal friendship or relationship with me without me going into tangents about outer space and astronauts. So... Yes, there was a very big technical malfunction, and I'm, I'm going to try to, to the best of my memory, uh, recount this in a, in a believable, not in a believable way, in a, a realistic fashion, true to history. There wasn't even enough time in our series to talk about everything crazy that happened on Apollo 11, let alone everything crazy that happened in the early space program. Basically, my understanding is Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin wore these incredibly bulky spacesuits. And the lunar module is very cramped. So cramped that it doesn't even have seats. 
So you're kind of just standing there in this cramped space landing on the moon. It's even more cramped when you put on these bulky spacesuits. And on the lunar module, there was this little switch, I guess you could say, this switch that they had to throw to ignite the ascent engine and blast off back into lunar orbit to rendezvous with Michael Collins and travel home. So they get back into the lunar module, having successfully completed setting up these experiments on the moon, gathering lunar rocks, what have you. They seal the hatch, they go to repressurize the lunar module, and prepare to head back into lunar orbit. And they see that this switch has snapped off. That at some point during them exiting or entering into the spacecraft, someone bumped it and it snapped It snapped in two. So now the switch that they have to use to get back into lunar orbit it doesn't exist anymore. And they're looking at what everybody knew was a big possibility that they might be stranded on the moon, unable to return back into lunar orbit. And that was that was the diciest part of the mission because nobody had ever landed on the moon before. So there were a lot of unknown variables, including the switch. And rumor has it that Buzz Aldrin took a pen and stuck a pen into that socket or whatever it was and thrust this pen forward and ignited the ascent engine and they rocketed back into orbit with Michael Collins. And that pen saved those two men's lives. Maybe that's why he stopped signing autographs because that pen ran out of ink. <laughs> do they still... When when did the... Because I'm pretty sure they, they don't do it anymore, but the uh, procedure of quarantining astronauts after spaceflight well, it wasn't after space flight. It was specifically after flights to the moon. Okay. So I believe that was something that they did for Apollo 11 and Apollo 12. Hmm. And after that, the procedure was sort of abolished. It was no longer needed. But that was probably difficult, being in space for a week in these cramped little spacecraft and then coming back to Earth and having someone tell you, oh, you got to stay in this tiny little trailer for two weeks until we can confirm that you're going to be maybe safe. maybe not i mean you consider all the different problems that a lot of people or okay a lot of the problems that they say that that astronauts have when they come back and re associating into society maybe that's kind of actually a good thing to like give them earth time alone. time time to emotionally decompress yeah there's evidence that so we talk about the overview effect a little bit in this uh, most recent episode, there's evidence that astronauts come back to Earth and it's very difficult to live their lives and go about their day-to-day affairs having been this far away from the Earth and having seen the true fragility of the planet Earth and our lives upon it. A lot of these astronauts became alcoholics later on in life. A lot of these astronauts had marriages that disintegrated later on in life. So there, there's some evidence that it's, it's almost terribly depressing because you see how precious the earth is and you see us as human beings often don't appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So there's that, but there's also the fact that, as we see in the movie First Man, 
it takes its uh, being an astronaut takes its toll on any marriage. Yeah. And one of the things that was interesting to me reading you, astronaut Eugene Cernan's biography, who was the last man on the moon, he talks about walking on the moon and having this incredible experience, you know, this sort of capstone of his career as a pilot and as an astronaut, and talks about the fact that he found out later that his wife at one point during the mission was laying on the floor of the shower with the water running, crying her eyes out because she was just so very worried about the possibility that he might not come back. And this was Apollo 17, so keep in mind, we had gotten into pretty good practice at that point doing lunar missions and bringing the astronauts back safely. But she was very, his, his wife at the time was very stressed out uh, by that. And then, the, so there's that, but also the, the fact that you, that you have a spouse that you just never see. Well, they do a very good job of portraying that in the film, of that sure. dynamic of, we've been to a lot of funerals. You know, as pilots, you go to a lot of funerals. Yeah. And that's that's something that's very unique to that community, and it's among those kinds of communities in the military where... Uh, the the spouses are very close, and right. the, the 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 men that are actually going off and doing the things are also very close. It's a very interesting community dynamic. It's kind of a I don't know village like. It's nice. Yeah, in my opinion. No, I think, abso- absolutely. I think a lot of people would prefer to be in their own way of being and be left alone after work, but it's cool to feel like you're a part of a bigger community. And it's unfortunate that it. It takes people dying all the time, <clears throat> all the time, in order for you to achieve that. Well, mil- military families, I think, occupy that niche, yeah. where and military spouses as yeah. well occupy that niche. But that being said, being an astronaut, that's an even more closely knit yeah. group yeah. because those the men who were astronauts, and of course, later on, the women who were astronauts, risked their lives much like people in the armed forces risk their lives going overseas and going into war zones. But there are aspects of it that are very unique because most of the people who risk their lives in war zones, most of the people who are combat veterans, people who serve in Iraq, people who've served in Afghanistan, do not come back and are, do not come back greeted as national celebrities. Hmm. N- nor are there lots and lots of reporters knocking, knocking down their front door uh, trying to interview them or trying to interview their spouses or trying right. to interview their children. Which, see that as being a good thing or a bad thing, it's up to you. Well, I think it, it raises that fundamental question of celebrity. Is Would it be a good thing or a bad thing to be a celebrity? A lot of Americans fantasize about being a celebrity, but the reality of it is you, you lose a lot of privacy in your day-to-day life. You have people constantly looking at you, expecting you to do, to say or do something clever or entertaining, and you're just trying to, to live your life. And I think that was arguably one of the problems that Neil Armstrong had, that he didn't necessarily want that celebrity. Yeah. So it's a, and, and the reality, too, is that some people handle celebrity very well and do it very gracefully and very respectably, and they enjoy the attention, and it's great. But of course, as we know, a lot of celebrities, it it messes with their mind. Yeah. And a lot of celebrities don't do too well with it. So, What was the last Apollo mission? 
that would be Apollo 17, which we talked about just a moment ago when I spoke about uh, astronaut Gene Cernan. Okay. Well, so that, so from 11 to 17, what were the, those other missions? Were those build-up missions to get to 17 again, or? Well, th- those were uh, Apollo 12, Apollo 13, as dramatized right. in the movie with Tom Hanks, Apollo 14, 15, 16, and then 17. Right. There were there were more Apollo missions actually scheduled that were, were canceled due to budget cuts. Mm. So we could do an entire series on the Apollo missions, but by the time we got to Apollo 11 in the podcast, I felt like this has been a very information-rich podcast mm. and to go to go any further with it, we're kind of at the the climax mm-hmm. of the story and the characters and the other Apollo missions. We mentioned them, but we didn't go into a lot of detail. So this is just part A of a three-part series. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we, I could go on and on. But the other Apollo missions are very interesting because they gradually extended these stays on the moon. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon only for about two hours. Mm. By the time you get to Apollo 17, they're, they're staying on the moon for days. Really? Yeah. And they're sleeping on the moon, mm. and they're doing multiple. They're doing a moonwalk. They're coming back in. They're eating dinner. They're mm. going to sleep, and they're waking up, going back to the going back to the lunar surface, doing another spacewalk. So, or a moonwalk. That's uh, believe it or not. There's actually on the subject of lunar landing conspiracy theories. There is a conspiracy theory, no joke, that I heard that every time someone googles the word moonwalk. Uh, Michael Jackson comes up in Google, the Google image search. And so I heard that, Na- that this is a, a real conspiracy theory, <laughs> that NASA had Michael Jackson murdered because they were very upset at the fact that we spent all this money, all these resources going to the moon. And now when you Google moonwalk, Michael Jackson is all that comes up in the search engine. It's absurd. It is. You would think that if it was a big cabal, they would want that to happen. <laughs> Anyway, um, the other Apollo missions were, I think, truly very impressive. And that's where the lunar rover comes in with Apollo uh, 17, 16, and 15. They had a lunar rover to explore the moon's surface. You also have astronaut Alan Shepard, who I think died in the 1990s. Mm. He was probably one of the first Apollo astronauts to have passed away. But his story is absolutely incredible, and it's it's dramatized in an episode of from the HBO series From the Earth to the Moon, which is an exceptional series. If anybody uh, listening to us wants to learn more about space travel or felt like First Man didn't necessarily delve into all the details of the Apollo program that they would, were interested in, I would highly recommend the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. But there, there's a whole episode about Alan Shepard, and his harrowing story is he became the first American in space and later on had problems, not related to his space flight, later on had problems in his inner ear and was grounded from space flight and had times when even driving a car, because I, I suppose, I'm not a doctor, but I suppose the fluid in your inner ear, that you have, if you're having severe problems with that, that it messes with your spatial awareness and things like that. So had times where he couldn't even drive a car, had dizzy spells, things like that, and essentially had to deal with the fact that his 15-minute flight 
in space. His suborbital space flight on Project Mercury would be his first and only flight in outer space. And eventually took a risk on doing an experimental surgery on his, his ear, or having this ex- experimental, he didn't do surgery on his own ear, but had this surgical procedure done on his ear where he could have uh, lost hearing in that ear if the, if the procedure hadn't gone just right, but it worked. And he got back into the flight rotation, and on Apollo 14, he commanded his own moon mission. And so you think, what an incredible career, being the first American to fly in space, to commanding your own moon mission. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's the American story. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> the American dream. American dream, yeah. Um, finally, is there any validity to the daughter bracelet story? Because I had never heard of that. I didn't even know that Armstrong had lost a daughter and didn't know that, that was something that had plagued him so much as it had. I wanted to do a little bit of research on that. What I'm going to reveal right now, much to my embarrassment, even though I consider myself something of an amateur space historian, I I frankly couldn't care less about the astronauts' families. Mm. This is to say that I admire the sacrifice made by the spouses and children of the early astronauts as well as current astronauts. And I wish them all the best. But in my research, in my reading, in my fascination with astronauts, it is a fascination with astronauts and space travel. And the personal details of their lives are things that I've never never taken much time to to read. Okay. Fair, fair, fair. So um... it, it is it is true, of course, that he did he had lost a daughter. Mm-hmm. But as as for the bracelet for the the bracelet moment mm-hmm. in First Man, I I couldn't speak to that. I would say, though, that I read a review where someone said that it was strikingly reminiscent where the old, the, the old lady tosses the, the heart of the ocean, this piece of jewelry, off the edge of the boat and into the ocean. Oh, So where do we go from here? Well, are, are, is that sort of the conclusion of your notes? That's all I had for you. Okay. So one of the things I wanted to talk about in closing, is this very exciting piece of space news that we've been following here at Universe University. Maybe when this episode is released, we will have more information, I don't know, but is the the Soyuz, and this ties in very closely to our uh, this episode that we, we just showed, because the episode that we just showed was Soyuz 1, and that flew sometime in the 1960s, the late 1960s, and we are still using Soyuz as a spacecraft to transport astronauts to the to and from the International Space Station. And that is one of the safest space vehicles ever constructed. It's still in use today and currently is the only vehicle that can transport human beings into space. And there have been some problems with it recently. One issue that they've had is a hole in the Soyuz spacecraft. And there were a lot of discussions early on as Russia was conducting its own investigation about why was there this hole in the Soyuz spacecraft? Was it a micrometeorite that had uh, hit the spacecraft? Was it done deliberately by one of the astronauts? Was it an act of sabotage? And 
the Russian space agency recently revealed that, in, in fact, it was deliberately drilled in the spacecraft, most likely on Earth at some time prior to its departure. Very strange, very mysterious. And then, very, very recently, there's this uh, incredible moment where the Soyuz spacecraft has performed so successfully since, of course, the ill the, there was the ill-fated flight of Vladimir Komarov. But for the most part, in the decades of the Soyuz spacecraft being used, it has performed extremely well, exceptionally well, and has been a, one of the safest, as I said, one of the safest, if not the safest, space vehicles in history. And they had a uh, failure where they had to abort very far into the flight. In fact, so far into the flight that the rocket ignited its engines, flew off the launch pad into the upper reaches of the atmosphere, and they were almost in space at the time they had to do this abort. And thankfully, the two astronauts on board the Soyuz came back to Earth and survived. No injuries, no fatalities, and they were all right. But that sort of has added a lot of fuel to the fire among conspiracy theorists who said there's, there's some deliberate acts of sabotage taking place within the Russian space program. Of course, at, at the time that we're recording this, we don't really know exactly why they had that failure most recently. But it's a big item. In, it's a big item in space news. There's always something going on in space news, but this one really stands out. Well, there's also one other big piece of space news, and it's in the private sector. Elon is sending a billionaire to space. Oh, yes. Well, so that, that's that been in the news for a while. And it also, oddly enough, all these little bits of space news tie in perfectly with our After Talk program and with our episode because Elon Musk talked about, and for quite some time now, he's talked about sending... A, a sending human beings back to the moon for the first time since 1972, which would be a big, big deal, even though it's just a, a mission to orbit the moon. And it turns out that it's going to be... Was he a Chinese billionaire? Yeah. Is that It was a Chinese billionaire. And he's going to bring artists with him mm. because he an artist has never really traveled in space. Though there are lunar astronauts who became artists later on in life. I believe Edgar Mitchell became kind of a talented painter after his Apollo 14 moon mission. I think that was Edgar, Edgar Mitchell. So that will be very interesting. Of course, Elon Musk, very, very accomplished in his career in business and also more specifically with SpaceX, of course. But... In, there are times when I, I feel like people worship him almost like a god, and the reality is that SpaceX, like any other organization, is flawed mm. and sometimes doesn't uh, meet their deadlines or honor their contracts, primarily because a lot of the things that Elon Musk is doing are very much cutting edge and extremely ambitious, to put it lightly. This mission to the moon was supposed to happen this year in 2018. That was the formal announcement that Elon Musk made, is that in the year 2018, we'll be going back to the moon. As it turns out, not going to happen in 2018, but it will happen at, at some point 
in the future, hopefully. Well, you know, hindsight. Hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> well, so this this is interesting because Elon Musk and SpaceX have yet to send a single human being into space. So from the time when America started sending people into low Earth orbit to the time that we landed somebody on the moon, that was almost a decade. Not quite a decade, but almost a decade. So Elon Musk is now talking about sending astronauts 240,000 miles away from the Earth when he hasn't sent a human, a single human being into low Earth orbit yet. Hmm. So, and again, very ambitious guy. So we will have to see what happens. But suffice it to say, I'm very, very envious of those people going on that journey to get a, a look at the moon up close and personal. Um, what else is there in space news? Um, oh, I was going to bring this up. They think that they have found a planet 10. Well, so this is another... When we talk about space news, the sort of the items at the top of my list were these very new developments that have, have okay. come out within the past so few weeks. this has been around for a while. All right. Yeah. So, but... It's frequently in the news. It'll, it'll, it's, it's sort of like the tides. It sort of ebbs and flows where you'll see some new articles come out mm-hmm. and some new articles will come out and reignite interest in a subject that's been around for quite some time. So to plug an upcoming podcast, we have an upcoming podcast about everyone's favorite planet, Pluto, which I'm very excited about. We can talk more about Pluto in the future. But Pluto was considered the ninth planet from the sun. So when Pluto was considered the ninth planet from the sun, there was then a discussion of could there be other planets as yet, or another planet, singular, as yet undiscovered in our, in our own solar system. That was a question that was out there. X being the algebraic unknown, sometimes people talk about planet X. Oddly enough, X is also the Roman numeral for 10. So people sometimes referred to planet X and planet 10 as synonymous with each other. Technically speaking, according to the uh, International Astronomical Union, Pluto is not a planet. So we only have eight planets. So it would not be planet right, 10. Right, it would right. be planet 9 or planet X, if you prefer. So... All I'm going to say is is astronomers are sort of doing the math, making predictions about the notion that there is another planet in the solar system. Of course, again, according to the IAE, there is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. That's the solar, those are all the planets in the solar system currently. There's a question of whether there's another one out there. We won't know until we can observe it through a telescope whether this planet exists, but the math seems to suggest perhaps, just perhaps, that it does. It's strange to me that we, we would be able to figure that out from, like, now that that's a thing, and not from all the telescopic missions that we've done previously, we wouldn't have seen it out there. Well, so the thing is, Pluto's orbit, for instance, is very strange. There's something called the ecliptic and the ecliptic is the the plane of the solar system that is to say sort of the orbits of all the the eight planets that i just mentioned that's very ordered it's very uniform and they're all sort of orbiting 
along the same plane. You know, picture a series of sort of a, a dot at the center of this diagram representing the sun and a series of orbits going out from there like sort of like ripples on a pond. Pluto's orbit is very different from all the other planets. Mm. And if you look at the orbits of some comets that are orbiting the sun right now, comets are, of course, these, these large balls of ice that occasionally come into the inner solar system. They grow a tail because they start to melt. Some comets' orbits are very, very strange. So picture an orbit that's so strange that occasionally this planet is sort of kind of visible from telescopes on uh, on Earth, but then goes orbiting way, 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 way far out into outer mm. space, you know, outside of the orbits of even Uranus and Neptune, which are the farthest planets from the sun. And then every, however long a year is on this planet, every mm -hmm. 500 years or every 200 years kind of comes back and sort of skims the edge right. of the solar system and then goes hurtling back into outer space. So it could have a very weird orbit, but mm -hmm. uh, we don't know. It's very exciting, and I think this is one of the things that I love about space uh, is that we're discovering exoplanets right now orbiting around other stars far, far away from the planet, trillions and trillions of miles away from the planet Earth, light years away from the Earth, and yet, our own solar system, we still don't fully understand. There's still so many mysteries within our own solar system that we're still unlocking. So I don't. I think the solar system, people get fascinated by black holes and exoplanets and distant galaxies, but our own solar system still has a lot of mysteries that are, are still just waiting to be unlocked. In the words of astronomer Carl Sagan, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known and in the coming episodes we're going to explore a little bit more of the solar system this epic three-part series that we did for you on the space race that's just what it took for human beings to get from the earth to the moon that's just our own back our own cosmic backyard so it'd be interesting to see our own orbital backyard yeah, the moon's orbiting around the Earth. The moon is so close, it's it's trapped by the Earth's gravity. And I would say that the moon, interestingly enough, is one of the largest moons in the solar system. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a fun little fact for you, is you have planets like Jupiter. Jupiter's so big, you could fit a thousand Earths inside of it. And yet, some of the moon, a lot of the moons orbiting around Jupiter are almost the same size as the Earth's moon. Do they justify that in saying that if it were if they were bigger structures, they'd be attracted more to Jupiter? And that's the reason why there are less moons around it. Well, there are more moons around Jupiter than around. I'm saying Earth. that they're less massive. If they were more massive, they would have been attracted into the surface of Jupiter. Um. No, I mean they're they're pretty massive. At least the the four Galilean moons, which mm. we're going to we're going to actually address those in our next episode com coming soon but uh so massive planets gas giants like jupiter saturn uranus and neptune gas giants do of course have very very powerful gravity mm -hmm. so there there's even some arguments among astronomers that these planets have sort of or these planets have sort of caught up 
other planets, like smaller planets, right. and pulled them into orbit right. around them. And that that could be the, the case for some of these moons. Jupiter has moons that are, are so big that they're the same size, if not larger, than some of the smallest planets in the solar system. Mm. But they constitute moons because moons go around, orbit around planets, planets orbit around stars. So, yeah, I, I would be uh, very interested to see if planet X or planet 9, mm-hmm. as some people are calling it, does exist. So which is next? Are we doing the, the great Pluto debate next or are we doing galileo next we're slowly traveling out into outer space you know we talk about universe university being a journey through space and time and that's not just uh, a catchphrase that's very that's literally what i want it to be so we're slowly moving out past the orbit of the moon out into the cosmos and so we're going to be exploring the moons of jupiter in our next episode but of course, I say it's a, it's a journey through space and time. We're also going to be going back in time to hundreds of years before the Apollo missions to learn all about the life of Galileo. And that's that's an incredible story, and I can't wait to share it with uh, all of our listeners. you have any closing remarks? No, I think... Well, okay. I, I would just say that I think the the moon landings... If anyone is listening to us right now who is a conspiracy theorist who believes we never landed on the moon, I will, I will just acknowledge this and acknowledging my own bias. I think we landed on the moon. I think there's sufficient evidence to say that we landed on the moon. But I would also admit my own bias and say, I definitely, I'm, I'm like Mulder in the X-Files when Mulder says, I want to believe I want to believe that we landed on the moon because this is an accomplishment that the United States of America can take credit for that is one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of the human race and is an accomplishment that all of humanity as a whole can share in and take some, some measure of credit for. And it's incredible. It's mind blowing. And it, it was a complete paradigm shift for us as a species. There are lots of intelligent primates on the planet Earth that have very big brains. But human beings thus far are the only ones that have left the planet Earth, gone to our orbiting satellite, the moon, collected rocks there, and brought them back to Earth. And that makes us very different than other forms of life on Earth. And I think... It's, it's an incredible accomplishment, and to some extent, I understand why there are conspiracy theorists out there that don't believe we landed on the moon, because it's, it's almost too much to wrap your head around. Astronaut uh, Gene Cernan had a great interview where he said, he said, my dad was alive when the first airplane flew. That's, this is what Eugene Cernan said. So he, he said that his, his own father couldn't wrap his head around the idea that he was going to the moon personally, astronaut Cernan. And his his five-year-old son thought that it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Or his five-year-old daughter thought that it, that it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And it, it speaks to sort of the brain plasticity of, of children. As, as if, you, if you were a small child growing up in that era, it's, it's just part of your reality that people yeah. were landing on the moon. If you are somebody who is from a very different generation 
very different life experience, very different perception. It's difficult to wrap your head around it. And I think that's, I guess that's sort of the, the note that I would leave on. I believe it's Michael Collins, if my memory serves me correctly, that has a uh, biography. I think it's an autobiography about his time as a member of the Apollo 11 crew. And the preface to this book is written by Charles Lindbergh. Hmm. And that blows my mind. You know, the, the Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic in a propeller aircraft and was alive at the time that Michael Collins, a man who, who was a lunar astronaut who flew, didn't land, land on the moon, but flew to the moon. And Charles Lindbergh was still alive right. to write the, the preface. Like, that's, yeah. that's wild. Right. That's wild. So then I, I want to reach out to our audience. We finally got our act together. At least I got our act together. We got our act together. Um, we have a formal email now, so if you guys have any other questions, the next time we do a, a wrap-up show for a show, we will answer your questions. Uh, the email is show at universe, university, all one word, dot space. So show at universe, university, dot space. We have our own TLD, which is the dot space part. So we don't have a .com or .org or whatever. It's just dot .space. Uh, like us on Instagram. Check us out on Twitter. Start following us. We're going to start adding a lot of content on there and interacting with you guys, figuring out if there are more topics that we've looked over that you guys would be interested in. Uh, find us on Facebook. And uh, in the near future, we've been talking about uh, we have a YouTube account, and we've been thinking about doing these live for you guys so that we can interact with you guys while we're going over the after talk for the show. Um, if that's something you'd be interested in, please contact us through all of those means and let us know what you think. Um, but yeah, again, thank you. We, we wouldn't do this without trying to make you guys interested in this material, and we hope that it's something that uh, you've been looking for and that you finally have found. We look forward very much to hearing from you, and I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we also have a Patreon page. We go to great pains to be able to find the time and the resources to devote to this program. And after this, we uh, will let you know when our next episode airs, but we're going to be taking a break for just a couple of weeks before we jump back into our episode on Galileo. So we will be back. Do not despair. There are more episodes coming soon. But yeah, t- taking a j- taking a just a brief hiatus for a couple of weeks before we teach you all about Galileo. We've got to let you decompress from all of this good information. Absolutely. <laughs>